And I'm excited because this uh, little trailer you just had, or you just saw, is uh, our new series that we're kicking off. And I'm a, on a number of levels that I won't get into of why we wanted to do this this fall. Uh, the one, one I wanted to share with you is that there's a recognition as that video stated that all of us uh, are attached and we're trying to make sense of our lives in light of story. We do this. That's why we go get coffee and we tell stories with our friends. That's why we go, uh, we write music. It's why we go see movies. Um, there's a sense of narrative. Uh, Bobette Buster, who's a really famous person who talks about story all the time, is a Christian at Pixar. And she always says, you know, whoever has the best narrative wins the day. Because the understanding of, of story, of who we are and who we're becoming, and this idea that there's a larger story that we're a part of, I would argue, every person from the most ardent atheist to the most like sold out Christian, like have an instinctive sense that this has to be connected or I'm gonna die. Like there has to be some greater sense or despair is knocking at my door. I was talking to a friend of mine about why I love depressing music. I think I've shared this with some of you before. Like, I love sad, depressing music sometimes because I at least feel like people are being honest about what happens when you engage like a lack of story. I don't mean sad like Taylor Swift talking about her boyfriend sad. You know, I mean like actual sad. No offense to Taylor if you're here. Uh, she's in Rhode Island, man. She's coming. Um, yeah. That really, really gritty, like, oh my gosh, there's really nothing left. There's really nothing else. There's something actually, I think, really refreshing about that because there's, it's a recognition of reality that without a narrative, without an understanding of, you know, the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice, without a sense, even if it's a very atheistic sense of, like, there's something more, there's got to be connected, there's got to be purpose. We as humans, we can't handle that. We're not just survival creatures. We are, we are sweat and blood and bones and we are spirit and energy and love and life and we know that tension inside of us. So that's why we wanted to do this series. And I want to just give you an overview. What we're going to do is go through what uh, N.T. Wright, kind of popular New Testament scholar, has called the six-act drama. So it's looking at the whole Bible, this whole book that many of you have or that whole app that you have in your phone. Uh, if you were to trace it in terms of like actual acts, the, the whole drama of scripture, you, you have, you can break it up in a number of ways, but the six ways I find really helpful, there's the creation. Okay, wh what's the story of, of who we are? How do we understand at our bones who we are? And we're going to talk about that today. Uh, and we're going to talk about the fall. So how are we sober-minded about the fact that there are the reality of brokenness and, and sin and evil exists in the world? Let's not play dumb about that, right? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the, the story of Israel and exile. We're going to talk about Jesus and his death on the cross, resurrection, understanding of the kingdom of God, and then we're going to land it in. So what the heck are we doing now as a church? So we're going to trace that over the next six weeks. And our hope is that our personal stories, the way in which we're trying to understand who we are as people, like you right now, and how that makes sense of this larger biblical narrative. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, I'm so grateful that my wife just prayed for me. Um, I'm like just, I had a really off couple days. Uh, and I could just, I would just appreciate a few of you if you could just be praying for me while I talk. And, and I just want to pray just kind of again uh, for some specific things in light of uh, just sharing the word today. Is that cool? I'm in like, I'm really needy mode too today, like pastor needy mode. So any feedback you got, 
You know, even if it's awful, even if you're like, ooh, poor point, booze or anything. I just, you with me? All right, cheers. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us people who are just fickle and broken and absent-minded and foolish so often. Lord, I thank you for your, the rescue, for the saving grace that we have in you. Thank you for the hope that so many of us here believe that we have in you. Not just of, of you coming again and putting everything back together. Though that is tantamount, Lord, but just like right here today. Like we actually believe in life before death, not just life after death. And so, Lord, we, we just ask that in this moment you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, Lord, that we might just be able to engage your word anew. For my brothers and sisters who will feel like this is a little over my head, I pray you give clarity, Lord, to them, that you would be able to help them understand and engage and make sense Lord, they would listen to your spirit's leading. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are like, ah, oh, this is like old hat. Lord, that you would give them a fresh wind, that you would give them an earnest and open spirit this morning. In your name, in the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. Amen. So there are so many different things I could talk about in light of the beginning of the Bible. Uh, this is like one of the, probably the, out of all six acts, this is the one with the most landmines, right? Let's just have a quick poll. You know, any of you believe in evolution? Oh, just, just no one's going to raise their hand. <laughs> like, oh, well, the guy next to me think I'm a heretic. You know, how many of you believe that the earth is really only X amount of years old? I could ask a couple questions that we know within the Christian community have this sense of tension when we understand Scripture. Uh, for those of you who are not a part of the Christian community, who have, you've not grown up inside of that, uh, or, or you're, you've read a whole lot on biblical issues and scholarship, maybe this issue is a little less tense for you. Uh, but what I'm not going to do, I'm teasing that out and then I'm just pulling it back. I'm not going to actually go there this morning. Awesome. The reason why is this. And I understand that for some of you this might be like just a big roadblock. And for some of you this is going to be the fresh air that you wanted. There are beautiful passionate, intelligent, prayerful, scholarly followers of Jesus. Uh, I, I can think of one in particular who's the head of the Human Genome Project, like the man of man when it comes to a lot of DNA science right now, who's a follower of Jesus and believes very much in evolution, has an understanding along with tons of other scholars of what's really happening in the book of Genesis. There are others like dedicated deep followers of Jesus who love the scriptures, who go, man, I just, I, 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 I don't know if you can do that with the text. And, and, and there's some tension there, and they're trying to make sense of that. We are all on a journey in making sense of the scriptures. Uh, and we believe, first and foremost, if we are to align ourselves with, like, basic Christian doctrine, that we believe that God created everything. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you believe that God created everything, will you say amen? And that's where we start. The book of Genesis is not a scientific document. It is not, and it was not meant to be. It was a story written to slaves in exile. It is actual poetry, as far as we would understand it. It has rhythm and cadence, and it's communicating something even bigger. What I love, a great quote that's been helpful for me, is the story of Adam and Eve is powerful, not just because it may or may not have literally happened, but because it happens. It's the story of who we are. Adam is literally like Mr. Earth, and Eve, like the, the definition of the name, is like misliving. 
Like, even in their name is simply like a picture of who we are and what's at the beginning of the story. And so I want to start there uh, just in, in illustrating the fact of this is unbelievably important for us to understand as people. What do we believe about the world? Uh, a recent philosopher, a secular, a, a, you know, atheist French philosopher recently wrote a book about the history of philosophy. And, uh, and he, he's quoted in this book as saying, um, basically, when we look out at this idea that everybody is created equal, when we look out at this idea of sort of a divinity and, and importance in all humans that we value here in the West, that kind of governs everything, no matter what you believe, uh, this idea, this ethic, is a strictly Judeo-Christian ethic. It is a Jewish-Christian ethic. This is where this comes from. Even folks who have completely devoid themselves from any sort of religion or tradition. And so this is a French secular, I don't know why it's important that he's French, but yeah, adds a little more oomph, you know? He's really angry. Just kidding. I love French people. Um, <laughs> the, this, this writer has no agenda is saying, look, when we look out at the whole premise of something like the UN existing, this stuff is driven back, basically, in his mind, when we look at philosophical thought and the evolution of it, is a, is a Christian idea. And that's why it's important that everything that we talk about in church, no matter like what the subject is, we ground ourselves in the Genesis account. There's so much going on here, and I want to be able to walk through. I have just so many notes I want to unpack and get through. There's so many just unbelievably beautiful things. But what I want to talk about specifically is around uh, Genesis 1. Uh, let's go to Genesis 1.27 if you have your scripture, if you have your Bibles with you. And I want to talk about the image of God. I want to talk about the fact that when God made the world, he said it was good. Amen? He said the world was good. In fact, he goes on as he's like, blowing stuff up, making more things. He's like, it's very good. And there's nothing in the Christian scriptures, nothing, that takes away from that reality. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature. We've talked about these words before, subdue, rule over. These are words that are all about human flourishing. These are not rule over in a domineering, patriarchal way. This is a ruling over in a cultivating way to steward, right? If you rule over and subdue your garden, right, you are cultivating it. You are helping it thrive. And so there's this unique, this is the first command given to people is like be and care for this world. Cultivate it in such a way that it flourishes. The second command is have sex and make babies, All right? That's just in the text. This is important for us to understand right out of the gate is that we were made in the image of God. And what can happen so often is this becomes like normal. How many of you have heard the phrase, you were made in the image of God before? 
most of you, a good chunk of you, even folks who are not Christians who are here, to, to understand that becomes one of those things like we talk about often. We're so close to the terminology that we just move on. So there's a number of things that I want to unpack. First and foremost, though, why does God use this sort of language? And I want to do a little overview of Scripture here. So um, let's go from why on earth does God not let people, like, say his name? God is so, throughout the Scriptures, is so, so keen on making sure that no one is making an image of him. Romans 1.22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans, birds, and animals, and reptiles. This is pretty normal. That's a New Testament. So swing back to the beginning of the Scriptures, Deuteronomy 5.16, do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure like the likeness of a male or female. Uh, in this passage, the word image, image is foundational. It appears 113 times in the scriptures, and almost all of them in reference to something God detests. Don't make an image. Don't make an image of me. You know, it's like, it's like don't look at me. Right? This is what, you know, our, our mayor elect, Yancey, says to people. Don't look at me. I thought that was pretty good. Don't take a, don't do anything. Don't model anything after me. Don't try to create something and don't elevate something in any way to, uh, to mirror me. Why is this concept of imagery significant? Is it's huge in the scriptures. Why is the association of imagery and false gods more significant than worship of false gods in and of itself? Some more scriptures about this idea. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Right? We immediately, we're reading this stuff and we're like, what on earth does this have to do with me? Like, we are not going around making idols of God's. So we're going to get there. He's like, don't make any graven images of me. I will not give my glory to another. Hold that. Um, they made a calf to Horeb uh, and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Another passage in Psalms 106. Jeremiah 2. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But have my people, my people have changed their glory for that which is not profit. Notice the language in these passages is interesting because it indicates that in the creation and worship of these things... They're not worshiping God. They've like created something that's more tangible in front of them. They've traded something for something cheaper. We don't build images to, to God to kind of feel closer, though we sometimes allow our worship to sort of shield ourselves from who God is. But we have all sorts of idols. We elevate money, and that becomes the thing that we worship. It's the thing we derive meaning from. It's the thing we can most have purpose around. We do this with warped ways we try to understand our identity. We do this all the time when it comes to security. It's so funny. We're like, like most folks in this room are more wealthy than the entire world, percentage-wise. And yet we worry more than anyone else about our stuff. We elevate things, and we kind of give them a sense. We don't say it in this language anymore, but we give it a, a divinity. In every one of these passages, notice... That God is engaged with this and he's worried about this and he, uh, or he, he is coming down on them strong on this because they have traded something. Something that, that they should have been focused on, they've now made something much 
cheaper. I expect that God would frown on idol worship because it flies in the face of the glory and honor that's due his name, right? The God of the universe. And what are you doing? Just because you can't see me, you're making that. You're trying to, this is your way of, of, of attaching yourself to me. You're, you're creating this false sense of security. You're not trusting me. You're putting your hope in something that, that is, is worthless and useless. But what seems to be clear in all of these passages, specifically in Isaiah 42, is that when we turn our attentions to images and idols for worship, our glory is given away. Our glory is made worthless. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says, For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. What if we take this sort of stuff seriously? If we go back and look at 42, Isaiah 42, if we are the glory of God, how does that change how we read, I will not give my glory to another? Why is it that God puts such an emphasis on the idea that his people should not turn to images? Is it because God is needy? God is very, like, just jealous in this sort of superficial way. God does not, I, I'm convinced, does not have self-esteem issues. I used to read that, like, when I was a kid that way. Like, oh, God is, like, kind of insecure. What if God doesn't want us to create images of other gods because he's already created an image of the only God that matters? What if the real evil of idol worship, and let's, let's attach this to modern day idol worship, were not so much that God's robbed of glory. God's like, why are you putting all your hope in that girl? Why are you putting all your hope in security? Why are you putting all your hope over there in X, Y, or Z? but that these images distract us from seeing the true image of God where he intended us to see it, which is where? In ourselves. Why not say the name, right? We're not supposed to say the name of God in the Old Testament, carve images of him. There's all these stories of we can't really, like, you know, don't even, like, see God. Just sort of a passing image of who God is. It's because you are the image you are the image. How would you live your life different if this was something that you took hold of? This is something that is incredibly hard, I think, for some of us to grab hold of. And, and so to, to dive even a little bit deeper into this, in reading just like a cursory kind of overview of what scholars talk about nowadays when they look at the Old Testament. Now, I know some of you heard scholars, Old Testament, and you just dialed out. Stay with me. It's fascinating that they look at this and they go, well, all the ideas of image, they actually predate the Judeo-Christian story. Egyptians actually kind of had coined this sort of idea, just fascinating, of like the image of, of like somehow the image of God. The image of God is all about idolatry. It's, I mean, sorry, it's all about idols. It's all about the fact that if you're an image of a God, let's just be like really like literal and obvious, Captain Obvious moment. If you're the image of a God, if that thing is the image of God, that's a, a, an idol in, in the best sense. Like that's a picture of what that God's like. And so in, specifically in Babylonia, in Babylonia, around the Babylonian exile, when the, the, uh, the Jews uh, were swept up in a time where there was all sorts of oppression, they were lowest on the totem pole, uh, and there were all these different nations vying for power. So the Babylonian Empire created their own, they had their own creation story. 
Marduk was the god. I think I have a good picture of him up here. You got Marduk? Give it up for Duke. No? No Marduk? There he is. Nope, not Marduk. That's all right. He can just leave. It's just random picture of some guys. Anyway, <clears throat> Marduk was the, uh, the god in this creation story. And this creation story says the world came to be because of violence and chance is the short version of it. There's actually a lot of parallels in the Genesis account to the Babylonian account. This is actually the most enlightening thing I had come across in years. Was that the Genesis account, the story of us being made in the image of God, and even how Genesis opens, is subverting this creation story. There was an empire that had made a creation story, and it's too much work to get into and <clears throat> exegete both creation stories, but it's fascinating. You go line by line, and you realize the Babylonian story is meant to keep people in slavery. All of the major creation poems, stories that were circling around ancient Mesopotamia, we're like back at the beginning. All of these things that were circulating were all about um, reinforcing patriarchy. In other words, keeping the people in power and power and keeping the people who were weak, weak. That's how they were structured. So somebody who was made in the image of God, they wouldn't say it exactly like that, would have been the Egyptian king, would have been the, the prince, anybody who was in royalty. Depending on the culture, they had different names. So uh, in the same way, it would be, okay, so I'm, a, I'm because I'm a pastor somehow, I bear the image of God, and I'm going to just show you guys what God's like. That would be kind of what it was, except in a much more, I mean, I know I oppress you guys a little, but like in a much more oppressive environment. Lordship, kingship, royalty. I know this is a world we don't live in, but it'd be like, okay, Congress and the president, those folks, let's imagine they, we didn't elect them, right? Like they weren't, like, uh, they weren't elected by the people. They just found themselves in power. And, and they're the ones who are, who are made in the image of God. So there's God, and then there's the image bearers, and then there's the people. And so the Babylonian creation story, you can go look it up. Just look up Babylonian creation story. It's fascinating. World comes to be through chaos. There's all different gods, and where the story lands is essentially reinforcing these are the people at the top, and this is why the oppressed should be oppressed. So Genesis is written to slaves in Egypt. That's where this comes from. So a bunch of slaves in Egypt who know these other creation stories, who know their other accounts, their uniqueness of the Jewish people where they believed in one God. And what's crazy is this writer drops that everyone was made in the image of God. I mean, it's like egalitarian to the bone. He just goes... Look, all of us. And then he says, right, that in the Exodus account, that we are all priests. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's telling a bunch of slaves in Egypt who are under the thumb of the empire that you are all actually made in the image of the one true God and that you are all kings and priests meant to, meant to rule and cultivate and see this world go forward. You are the image of God. All that stuff about carving idols, don't give your glory to another, is that why would you try to dist yourself, distance yourself from who I say that you are? This isn't just some weird ancient story to go back to our, our French philosopher friend. 
He's saying that this idea was so revolutionary in human history that it shifts the way we think about now. People who want nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with, with the faith, with the God at all, are still so many of our systems are operating under the premise that actually everyone was made in some equal fashion. And we believe made in the image of God. In fact, oh, it's crazy. In fact, at the very beginning of the story, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, darkness. This is very similar, by the way, to how the, um, the Babylonian story begins. And God said, let there be light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there's evening and morning the first day. In the Babylonian story and in these other traditions that were happening around that time, like the sun was a big deal, like the God. This God like takes the other gods and just like they're like ornaments. Doesn't even make reference to like the sun, just like light. Again, this means like nothing to us like as modern 21st century people, I understand. But... This is huge. This is so important because when we read the story, we have to recognize that it was in a context that this writer is telling these slaves, like, hey, 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 these gods, nothing. Like, they're worshiping stuff that's like, nah, God did all that. Just, like, no, no, God gave you the ability to make all the wealth that you have. Actually, God did that. Don't start worshiping money. Actually, God, like, blessed you and gave you, like, a sexuality and a way in which of understanding what it means to love people. Like, stop making an idol out of your sexuality. Like, God gave you mission and purpose, and you keep directing it into things that are useless and not in any way, like, helping the kingdom of God go forward. Stop putting your faith else. I made you like this. All that other stuff is stuff I did. I made. It's, it's fascinating to a group of Jews I can't even imagine who are in exile who are, who are hurting, or at this point in, in, in slavery under the Egyptian rule, and they're reading this going, oh, dude, he just threw down. He took all the gods of the others. I mean, we could go, again, I wish I had time. Oh, my gosh, there's just so much just to walk. Maybe I should just do like a theology on tap night or something. Just go through Genesis 1. Just line after line after line. It's subverting the story of the day which said there are people who have are important. The ones who are in power are the only ones that truly matter. And it was the great equalizing force. Unbelievable. The social hierarchy, one scholar says, of Babylon is vigorously legitimated by these old stories. And what happens in the Genesis account is essentially an unbelievable move of just eliminating the system, eliminating the caste, eliminating the social, social structures. Just absolutely brilliant. So, if every man and every woman is created in the image of God and there is no hierarchy, the great democratization of God's image to every citizen of the world, we have to begin to ask, okay, so how did this play out? How did Jesus make sense of this? How did the early church make sense of this? What did this mean for them to understand that their father in heaven, somehow they bear in bearing this image, and somehow they, they had deeply rooted in who every person was, was somehow connected to the God of everything. Right, some of you look a lot like your parents, right? Any of you look like a ton? Like, let me know, like, do you, like, people look at you and they, like, almost confuse you if it wasn't for the age gap. Some of you are weathered. You already look like your parents. <laughs> Just playing. 
sometimes it's really hard to kind of identify the fact that we, we like, in any way have anything connected to our parents. Sometimes we don't actually realize uh, what and the ways in which our parents have, I don't know, like, imprinted themselves on us. The way in which we understand and the way in which we see the way our parents have affected us and the way we bear those personality things, the way we bear the physicality even, it's really helpful for me at least to understand how that is deeply connected to how we are as a people to understand our connection with God. That somehow in looking in the mirror we get a glimpse of what God is like. Now it may be so tarnished and broken, but there is something there that should drive and help us make sense of who we truly are as people. Man, oh, I got to tell you this story. In light of looking like your parents, so the other, this is last, last night, uh, we had friends who, uh, who, were, who came over, and we were babysitting, and, uh, and it was great. We got to like, watch their two kids, and they got to go out and like, just enjoy the night. And uh, <clears throat> just before we were about to put them down, uh, some of the kids and uh, our friends hadn't actually left yet. We were just doing all the, you know, the craziness of trying to get three different children uh, to bed. So our baby and then their two. <coughs> I uh, I always give my daughter a, a bottle, and uh, as I was going to grab the bottle, just moving really quick, you know, chaos. I'm just making excuses for myself for what's about to come. I grab the bottle and I see this milk. So I put the milk. It's in a little thing. Pour it in the bottle mix it with the milk that's already in there. Um, and this is, by the way, breast milk. Uh, this wasn't a formula. So I, I put this milk in there, and I go downstairs, and I start to feed my child just before uh, she's about to go to sleep. And so I'm having my little moment. I'm in the rocking chair. This is great. And all of a sudden, just the quiet, it's like those noise machines on. So, and I'm, like, starting to fade a little bit, and Harbor's starting to fade, and I hear... Andrew, Andrew, stop, stop. Like my wife comes running down the stairs. I'm like, what, what? She's like, where did you get that milk? And I immediately am like, oh, no. So, you know, our, our, like, our DNA, the image of who we are is, is in, in some ways, that's a lie. Our DNA is in our breast milk. I don't even know where I'm going with that. <laughs> I had grabbed my, my friend's wife's milk and fed it to my daughter. It's actually more of a cocktail because some of the other milk was in there. So I go upstairs thinking, oh my gosh, this is, I'm going to be ridiculed. And, and our, our friends who were up there were like pretty easy going about it. Like, well, we'd have to go back home to get more m- milk that we have. For, so why, why, don't you, why don't we just give our baby Corey's milk? <laughs> my buddy, my buddy. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying so hard not to say the name of who these people are. It was great. And so he just goes, he just goes, he's like, dude, it's getting weird in here. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you want to know what's even weirder is I have your wife's breast milk on my shirt right now. It's like, how much weirder can we get this going? For those of you who are weird about bodily fluids and things like this, welcome to church. I... It, it, <laughs> In all, in all honesty, after this happened and I was going to sleep last night thinking about this teaching, I just was thinking about, you know, the hesitancy in that so often is the fact that, like, oh, well, that's their, you know, the, 
whatever, you know, so much about who the mother is literally is passed through the breast milk. You know, health and, and you know, allergies can be passed, all of this sorts of stuff. And, uh, and so it's fascinating just to think about um, the connectivity that, we, that a mother has to her child. And thinking about in this really ridiculous moment of, oh my gosh, this is out of like a really bad sitcom. Thinking of, of how, when, we, when I think of God the Father, I think of like who Jesus or who God is and recognizing the fact that we are somehow made in his image, that there's something resembling who I am, resembling who he is in me. And there's something at the bones of my being. Um, this should, in theory, have some sort of effect, I would think, on not just how I see myself, but how I see others. That that I would actually believe something as far-fetched as the God of the universe in some way has been imprinted on my psyche, whether I like it or not. So how did Jesus make sense of this? His understanding of the world, how did it affect him and what he did? In John 3.16, the football verse, John declares that God's love to everybody, to the whole world, this is a brand new idea that a religion would cross lines. Right, the Jewish people were blessed to be a blessing. He's tapping into this Judeo-Christian story, which was not about tribalism, but was about breaking the walls down and recognizing the holy, beautiful reality in every human being that God actually loves. It doesn't mean we're not broken. It doesn't mean we're not sinful. We're going to get to that next week. Uh, but he declares in Matthew 5 that God's love, not just, not just those who love him, but those who hate him, he loves. Showering rain and sun on both the evil and the good. Jesus reminds his listeners that God is a forgiving God and that therefore all who would be God's children must also be forgiving. Jesus said that God pays no attention, or sorry, that God pays attention to even the life of a sparrow and all the more attends to providing for our material needs. Jesus so frequently goes and cares for those who are poor and needy and abandoned. And these reminders were often accompanied by teachings requiring all those who followed Jesus that they had to love like he loved. That Jesus' understanding of love, forgiveness, and what he was here to do is directly informed by the fact that every human being is made in the image of God, has divine purpose and value and worth. And I find those who don't struggle with self-esteem issues and don't struggle with, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I feel really weak about myself or who I am, are often the ones who need to hear this the most. Now, if you're in a really broken place, I hope this just encourages you. You are made in the image of God and God cares for you. If that's all you walk away from today, like that reminder, awesome. But for those of us who are like, yeah, 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 I get it. I don't really struggle with self-esteem issues. Look at what happened when the church took hold of the fact that not only they, but everyone around them was made in the image of God. The gladiatorial games. This is this amazing story. Right? Anyone, anyone um, oh my gosh, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, the fighting, ultimate fighting, ultimate fighter. What is it? UFC. Thank you. Anyone UFC fans? Couple. No, none of you. Who is the one UFC fan? All right. Amen. Um, I'm actually not a giant UFC fan either. But um, what's interesting is like take UFC, right? Some of you don't like that because you're like this is brutal and violent and oh my gosh. Now, now just put a bunch of like uh, death row inmates, replace them with like fighters who still have like, you know, humanity in them. Like who are just brutal killers. Uh, not that people with death row inmates don't have humanity in them, sorry. And you are there in the ring, 
And you, uh, the winner has to kill the other. There's no, like, option. There's no, like, mercy. Like, this it was brutal. So a really fascinating story that happened uh, in the 200s was the, uh, the Roman Empire had just overcome, like, the Goths, uh, not the kids wearing black in high school, the empire. And, uh, and they uh, are, just want to celebrate. So they gather everybody into the epic Colosseum. And uh, everyone's gathered around, and there's circus performers, and, and the thing, and that's not like giraffes and elephants. And then people are starting just, they, they start the games. Some men are fighting animals, some men are fighting other men. So Telemachus, who is this monk who became a Christian, I think like 19 or 20 or something like that, so history says, had left his monastery to go out, and he had this calling to go to Rome uh, just to, to preach the gospel and, and to preach the message of peace. And he finds himself caught up in this crowd. He finds himself then in the Colosseum with all this happening. And he had heard rumors about this. It's not like you can just go online and like check the latest Roman game. Like he had heard rumors that people actually like fought like this and had never seen it with his own eyes. And he finds himself in there so distraught and saddened, he marches down to the front, and that's actually where that image was, was Telemachus, if you want to put that back up, into the main area. They, they made that stage so I wouldn't do this, but I'm doing it anyway. Into the middle of the arena where people are like stabbing one another, and he just starts saying like, in the name of Jesus, Stop. He says a number of other things that are recorded, but they all circle around this. In the name of Jesus, stop. He starts talking and basically preaching the image of God about peace, about this is not how people treat one another. In the name of Jesus, stop. People thought he was a clown, like some sort of like character that was brought out that was going to be trumped out. So they sort of ignore him at first. Uh, and then at the very end, you can see him trying to stop the Roman guard here. Uh, he actually is killed and murdered. There's two different accounts. They both basically communicate roughly the same thing. One's a little more dramatic, so I'm guessing that's not the true one. Uh, but basically what happens is that right after this, a day later, or arguably within the day, the Roman gladiatorial games are canceled. Like people, the one, the one account, the dramatic account, is that people just stopped as soon as he was dead, just sitting there on the ground. And the people have this eye-opening experience of like, what are we doing? We are barbaric. And people start walking out quietly out of the Colosseum. That's the dramatic story. The undramatic story is people were so confused and couldn't believe this happened and were distraught. The games sort of half go on. And the next day, the emperor is so unbelievably moved and messed up by what this Christian had done. He says, we no longer can, can participate in entertainment like this. This was somebody who had a particular and clear image that people on death row are made in the image of God, that we should not be participating in anything that is dehumanizing of everyone else, of anyone else, because everyone is made in the image of God, and everyone has, has, a, a, has the, this divine spark in them, and that in some way God cares for everyone. This has massive ramifications for how we treat both the annoying coworker and, and how we think about the ISIS situation, that everyone was made in the image of God and how God sees everyone. Uh, a couple other stories. The practice of child exposure um, shows like the low regard that Romans had. Unwanted babies were left in trash heaps. This is very well documented. And some of these were taken to be slaves or prostitutes, and it was distinctly Christian understanding of Imago Dei, scholars say, uh, the image of God, that brought these practices to an end. Orphanages being set up. Um, uh, how the, del the modern-day idea of adoption was born out of all of this. Uh, those who were really deformed and, and, and 
uh, and we're just totally on the underside needy uh, folks were actually taken in and cared for. Second century prostitute Afra of Asperg uh, turned, um, who became a Christian, ended up ministering to abandoned children and runaways. She was like, the, you know, 821 campaign or, you know, child sex slavery. This was like the beginning. It was very early on, these Christian beliefs, this understanding that everyone was made in the image of God. There's so many epic stories about Vikings and slavery and what happened. There's so much. Um, there's so many things surrounding women. It's so fascinating to me when people try to make the book out to be oppressive to women. I don't understand it. Even just an ounce of research about the context of how the scriptures are lined up is one of the most liberating books when it comes to the genders. Unbelievably liberating when it comes to how women should be treated and how women should be cared for, and how women should be elevated to the same place as men. Can I get at least some sisterhood, amen? My traveling pants. That's an old reference right there. I just dated myself. Man, there's so many stories to tell. I gotta get done. Healthcare, last one. This is one I'm so excited about. Like starting the hospitals and every people, there's the Christian vision that any city that had a cathedral should have a hospital in it. And Christians, right around the time of some of the worst plagues, these, these, uh, the, the cathedrals were turned into uh, hospitals, uh, turned into places where people were actually like cared for. Uh, Christians played a significant role in the establishment of, of uh, hospitals in particular in a way that so often they were meant to sort of take in lepers and then kind of leave them there. And the actual healing process and allowing this to be a place of transformation, of prayer, uh, and of caring was just a radical idea that was directly informed by the image of God. In the United States, the early hospitals were framed and motivated by the responsibilities of Christian stewardship. Um, They were originally established to help the poor sick but weren't intended to provide long-term care lest they become like a germ-infested almshouses. That's a direct quote from some of the early uh, forefathers. And the the Christian understanding was actually this needs to be a place uh, that is... is, uh, is a blessing to the society. Um, uh, one, one way, just recently, this is, may sound really superficial, but I think it's really neat. Uh, can you show the, uh, the IMPVD slide, the Instagram slide? Yeah. This, anyone know this guy? Anyone seen Mo? Yeah. So Mo um, is a guy who's downtown. He tells sometimes some really dirty jokes, and, uh, and he reads poetry to you. And, uh, you know, if you are easily frightened by people, he might be someone who's like, oh, my gosh, why are you talking to me? Uh, he's a really unbelievably beautiful person. Uh, because he's made in the image of God. And it's re- interesting, um, a friend of mine started this project who actually goes to this church. Uh, I think she likes to stay anonymous about this, I'm not sure. But IMPVD is this Instagram account. Next slide. And she goes around telling stories, just identifying people, whether they have nothing, whether they're homeless, uh, whether they're doing really incredible things, running bars, clubs, professors, and just telling the story, honoring, giving dignity to the people, um, reminding all of us in some way uh, that everybody was made in the image of God, that there's divine worth on every human being. It's a simple thing, but what it does for somebody like me, who has a major like Pharisee streak in him, you know, who's like is always like, you know, I made the joke the other day about my traffic issues, right? Like my, I have major like justice issues when it comes to like people who walk and don't walk on crosswalks. Like, I, you know, just little things. I'm like, I'm so self-righteous or I get this all done or those people probably deserve it. Right, by the grace of God, he has changed me, but that is something that's like this weird complex that still stirs around. And, and things like this, the reminder of the Imago Dei, the reminder of the beginning of the story, 
helps recalibrate my entire being, my sense of mission, what I think about my job, what I think about my work, what I think about my wife, my family, how I'm going to raise my daughter, is to look around at every single stinking human being, whether they are a miserable wretch of a person in that moment or whether they are like helping you do whatever you need to do and they are just feeding your ego. Everyone is made in the image of God. They in some way look like God. Now that image can be tarnished and broken and messed up. But this is where the beauty of, and we'll obviously get into this later, if Jesus comes into play. This is where uh, we have a God uh, who has sent his son to reclaim the image of God. Scholars have talked about to reconnect all the broken, shattered pieces of the icon of who we are, to put us back together, to forgive us of our sin and reassemble who we are called to be. And so often we live like, uh, like the celebrity with amnesia. Right, we have this like gorgeous house and unbelievable career and 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 family or whatever it is. We have all this status. You know, we bump our head one day, and we start wandering. It's like looking around downtown. We see Taylor Swift wandering around, like looking pretty aimless. Like, do you know who you are? And she just looks back. He like, no. It's like, all right, good. Don't stop making music. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. No, you, you, somebody like that, and all of a sudden, you start to remind them who they are. Actually, this is what you've done. This is your career. This is the beautiful art that you've communicated. These are the people that love you. This is, you realize the inheritance that you have, and you forgot it. This is only a piece of the Christian story, but this is in one way, one analogy of what Jesus has come to do. This is who you are. This is who God says that you are. I want to forgive you and set you free. I want to call you to repentance, to turn back to the person that you were created to be. Turn away from your sin and come home. We as followers of Jesus get really serious about sin and brokenness because we're really serious about being made in the image of God. Because anything that tarnishes and distorts, any way that we trade the glory of being like God and we give it to something else, or we allow it to be perverted or twisted or messed up, where we're not just, where our identity is totally like twisted off in some other direction, where we focus our energy on ourselves and become self-centered, any way we have traded our glory We have a God who so loves us, who has said everyone, not just those in power, are made in my image and I love dearly and I have sent my son to reclaim that image, to put it back together. And it's only by Jesus and his grace and his power that that can happen. Amen? And that for us, whether like Derek prayed, you are on top of the world or you are struggling right now, this understanding of the beginning of our story people made in the image of God we look God in the mirror when we recognize we are crowned with glory it says in the psalm this should inform us and help us feel both comforted loved and cared for and and for some of us on top of the mountain it should be like another like kick in the butt and like the best possible like spurring you on to okay what then are the implications of this in my life? What then when I hear the story of Telemachus? What then when I see the history of hospitals and orphanages and care? What then when I look around in my really, really frustrating environment at work? What then when I look at my spouse who I'm at my end with and I don't know if I can do this another day? What then when we recognize that we are not just looking at a mere, C.S. Lewis says, another mere human being, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as just a mere human. That we are looking in some way 
however tarnished and broken and messed up, at another child of God. And it is in Jesus and in Jesus alone that we reclaim, that image can be reclaimed by his power and by his grace. I'll end with this. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. We were created in the image of God and intended to be conformed to his image. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And so if Colossians is true, that Christ is the image of the invisible God and that we are to be conformed to that image of Christ. It helps inform why uh, the ancient scholar St. John of Kronstadt says this. Just let this like drop on you. Never confuse the person formed in the image of God with the evil that is in him. Never confuse the person formed in the image of God with the evil that is in him. Because evil is but a chance misfortune, illness, a devilish revere. But the very essence of the person is the image of God. And this remains in him despite every disfigurement. This remains in him despite every disfigurement. Can I get an amen? Man. We are the means by which God is to share himself with creation. We are the means in which God intends to share himself with creation. And pray for us. God, I, I, um, it's funny how much I realize, Lord, how much my story uh, is not governed by what is said at the beginning of the scriptures. It's amazing the amount of times I just don't trust what seems like a very simple statement. It's amazing the ways that I don't ground who I am. I don't ground who I, who I am in, in the truth. Think about our, our stories. Like every single person in this room who has a different story, who has despair and is filled with hope and is just feeling really confused and, yeah, who is on the mountaintop and think about just how easy it is how easy it is to look to everything else but you how hard it is to trust
Not just that I, we can be made whole. I think I, think, I, think I trust that. Or I, I trust that, that right here, right now in this place is just rest. Is that I am known. I am loved. I am forgiven. And that the person sitting next to me or the person on the news or the infuriating person on Facebook is loved is made in your image. And they, they may not be following you and they may not have said yes to Jesus. They may not be participating in, in the grace that you offer. But it doesn't change that they were made in your image and that they hold this divine worth. I pray our church chooses life, chooses the love of enemies every time that we choose freedom for the captive, that we care for the unsexy and the awkward. That we are given fresh, those who are here who are followers of Jesus are given just fresh, fresh wind, like fresh, just energy and fire to forgive, to be patient, to see you in the face of everyone that they come across. That we would recognize that every person's story can, can be informed or not informed by this truth. And I pray we choose to live in light of this fact. That we choose to live in light. That we would follow suit with our brothers and sisters who have not just created hospitals, but who have taken in the hard, lonely person. Not just the people who have stopped Roman games, but the person who has bent down to pick up the friend who's stumbling, to care, to be the one person that doesn't gossip, to be the one person that doesn't defame somebody else because we see something spectacular in the other person. This, Lord, is our story. This is our song. This is where it all begins with the great democratization, with a God who says, actually, those who have the most power and most money and most whatever, actually, actually, they are not the ones who run the world. Actually, it is, it is me and through my love and through my, my washing of feet. Or we just look to your son and his death on the cross, the ultimate act of sacrifice and love. Through humble meekness, we, a church of a few hundred, a church in a, in a small group of people in a big city that we by your power and your grace can be people who elevate life in this city who in Jesus name care for and bless and pour out with such generosity on those who are undeserving because we know that we are undeserving 
I don't know what you're speaking to people today. I pray that this moment, just sitting here, you would give us specific people, circumstances and situations, ways in which, Lord, whether it's just personal care, things we just need to hear and just trust that we are loved right where we are or, or just vision for our future and for the mission in front of us, Lord, that it just just break through our barriers, Lord. Speak to us. Speak to us, your children. Speak to us, your image bearers, Lord, in this time.